This season of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Cook's Matches. Cook's Matches have been the mainstay of British kitchens for over 40 years, and they remain the match for both cooks and chefs to use in the kitchen. With summer just around the corner, it really does feel that way, we aren't far away from barbecue season and all those gorgeous summer parties, which means you should have your cook's matches to hand to take you from lighting the barbecue at lunchtime right through to the evening when you can get some candles lit in the garden. No kitchen should be complete without a trusty box of these matches. They are just the easiest and most eco-friendly way to light everything from stoves to barbecues to candles. If you're stuck for what to cook this summer, then Cook's Matches loves compiling recipes to show easy, delicious and family-friendly dishes. Head over to their Instagram page at Cook's Matches and join the Cook's community. Find out more online by visiting cooksmatches.co.uk. Thank you very much to Cook's Matches. Hi, I'm Margie Namora and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island Dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Hi, thank you all so much for the lovely feedback on the first two episodes of this season. I'm so glad they've been going down so well with you. Today's episode is no exception and it is a very long one. But honestly, going through it, I found it impossible to find bits which I wanted to cut out. So even if you do have to listen to this in two parts... I really do think it's well worth a full listen. I should tell you that we do cover some pretty big topics of mental health and depression. So please do be aware of that and take care of yourselves. Ella's story is a very inspiring one, but I just wanted to flag that to you at the beginning. We recorded this, as we did with the others, pre-Christmas, pre-baby. <laughs> and so when we talk about her new book... It's quite far in the future and only just being announced. But now, if you're listening to this as it comes out, you can actually pre-order Ella's new book and it's available to buy at the end of May, which is very soon and very exciting. And I can't wait to get my hands on a copy. I love chatting to Ella and I hope you will enjoy listening to this just as much. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope you're sitting comfortably wherever you are and I will see you on the other side. My guest today is Ella Risbridger. Ella is an author, writer and cook, and in her own words, sometimes a journalist and other things too. Described by the Times as the most talented new cookbook writer of a generation, her debut Midnight Chicken and Other Recipes Worth Living For was published by Bloomsbury in January 2019 and won praise from Nigella Lawson, Nigel Slater and Diana Henry. It's an unusual cookbook in that it starts with Ella trying to take her own life. But what follows next is the journey of her falling in love with cooking, which ultimately leads to her falling in love with life. It's a cookbook about mental health, about anxiety, a cookbook about life being difficult and complicated and lots of fun. It's a book about living in London in your 20s with an anxiety disorder and being in love. And of course, there are brilliant recipes. The one and only Nigella has said, one of the things that makes Midnight Chicken such a very good book is how hard it is to say exactly what it is. Yes, to be sure, it's a cookbook, but it's also a manual for living and a declaration of hope. Welcome, Ella. Hi, Margie. Thank you for having me. And thank you for saying all those very nice things about me. Oh, it's such <laughs> a pleasure. And I have to tell you that I loved reading Midnight Chicken and it deserves all the praise. Thank you so much for writing such a brilliant and important book. Well, thank you for being nice about it. It's very nice to hear on quite a grey Tuesday. <laughs> Midnight Chicken was your debut book. And to have got that kind of reaction, I mean, it's the stuff of dreams. Tell us a little bit about how that felt from the inside. Did you know that it was going to be so well received? No, was, no. It, was it an instant hit? Or sort of how does that kind of thing unfold after publication? I was in a bit of a weird state. So I wrote it mostly when my partner, person the book's about, was dying. So I kind of wrote that and then it came out after he died and I was just in a bit of a dream world. 
I was just kind of ready to take anything like, oh, I, I guess, okay. And then my publishers kind of kept saying nice things about it and saying, we'll do this, we'll do that. And then the illustrations came in and it didn't feel real. If you've written a book, listening, you'll know that there's a stage where you're like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Someone's quickly going to tell me, no, go home, baby. This is a grown-ups. So no, I was completely surprised. I think Nigella got in touch just before Christmas. So it came out in January, 2019. And Nigella got in touch just before Christmas to say that she was enjoying the proof. And I was staying with my parents and I had all of my sisters and my sisters, all my sister's boyfriends and three of my best friends. And we were just kind of sitting around playing Christmas games and sort of doing Christmassy things. I just remember looking at my phone saying, you're not going to believe what's just happened. You are not going to believe what is happening to me. It was very surprising. It remains very surprising. Oh my goodness, I just can't even imagine. What? So you got a message on your phone saying, Nigella loves it. I think I got a DM on Twitter from Nigella. Stop it, Ella. And I couldn't process it at all. It was very weird. I mean, I have to say that that was probably the most startling, but I think the most moving thing for me was Diana Henry's endless and total support. So this is very sweet. And I am going to tell you this because it it sort of betrays what a wonderful person Diana Henry is. When I was a student, I used to buy cookbooks and I, cookbooks are very expensive. They are 25 pounds. And I never forget how expensive cookbooks are, which is something I take very seriously when I write them. Cookbooks are expensive. Hard copies are expensive. And I used to buy a Diana Henry cook every time something really good happened. I had a jar on my desk and I would put money in it. And then when something really good happened, so when I finished my dissertation, whenever something like that happened, something big happened, I would go to the London Review of Books bookshop in Central and Central London. And I would buy one of Diana Henry's books. And I would tweet about this because I was very into the internet back then. I'm less into the internet now. And somehow she saw it and just sent me a message saying, which ones don't you have? And then she sent me the one I didn't have with a lovely note. That is so nice. It was just such a small thing. She just, I think I'd followed her. I think I'd said a few nice things to her on the internet, but she just reached out to me and I had a food blog at the time and she read my food blog. And I think really Nigella and Nigel Sater kind of came to it because of Diana's consistent, beautiful championing of my work. She's just been amazing. She's the most supportive person I mean, I assume everyone listening to a food podcast has got all of Diana's books, but really you should go and get all Diana's books immediately if you haven't. Yeah, I love stories like that. I think that's the kind of thing you sort of dream about if you become successful, that you can kind of, you can do that kind of thing and and make such a difference in someone's life. It's such a nice thing, isn't it? And when you hear that someone as famous and successful as her, as, as thoughtful as that, is such a lovely thing. I do find that actually with cookbooks. Generally, I found people to be incredibly supportive of each other, very open to other people. I don't find it. So I obviously write other kinds of books as well. And I find cookbooks to be the least competitive and the most kind of helpful. Mm, That's nice to hear. People are very ready to kind of share. That's so good. And you've said that food writing is is less about the food and, and more of just a really interesting way to tell stories. It's an interesting way to crack into people's personal lives. And that's how I feel about food too. It's so often not about the food and it's about the stories behind the dishes. Was it a surprise then that after many years of writing, your first book was a recipe book? Totally, totally baffling. (laughs) I didn't cook anything. I cooked like a couple of things, but I didn't really cook. I wasn't very interested in cooking until I was sort of 19 or 20. I wasn't really interested in food. Didn't grow up in a very foodie house. My mum has, we'll probably get to this later on the podcast, but my mum had a lot of ideas about kind of organic food and local food quite a long time before it was really mainstream, which is because my grandparents also have quite a lot of ideas about the way we should eat and stuff. So I kind of grew up with this sense that food wasn't necessarily something delightful, but it was certainly something you should think about and take quite seriously. But it never was for me. I read a lot. I was interested in studying. I wanted to be an academic. I just could never have predicted this. I would never have thought the kitchen would be where I would find so much happiness. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I I love this story so much. And if anyone listening hasn't yet read Midnight Chicken, then I implore you to get your hands on a copy. But Ella, for those listening who might not have read it, it's an unusual cookbook because at its core, ultimately, 
it's a manifesto of moments worth living for. Is that how you describe it? I think that's how I describe it in the book. I don't know how whether I describe it as that now. It's so interesting when you kind of look back at so it took me five years to write Midnight Chicken in some really difficult periods. And kind of when I look at it now, I'm amazed by some of the writing. I think, who are you? What do you, what do you think about that? I guess Moments Worth Living For does kind of sum it up. Yeah, Moments Worth Living For. I think that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> we'll stick with that. Yeah, the tendency to kind of edit on the fly your own book is tricky. Well, yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, putting words down and then being there forever when we're sort of, as a human, you're constantly evolving things that you think constantly change you know you're adding to your knowledge all the time it that must be a sort of certain type of torture in a way having it written down and and that you can't change it <laughs> yeah muddy it's awful <laughs> i think part of it is that with any kind of art with any kind of writing there comes a point where you're like the book is technically done it must now go to the printers i can edit no more but i think it's especially galling with a cookbook at least i find it so because I'm improving all the time. There are things I say in Midnight Chicken that I'm like, oh, for God's sake, you just didn't know how to do that properly. <laughs> I think in some ways that's why Midnight Chicken resonates with a lot of people because there's workarounds in there that I would never use now because I have different, better equipment or I know what I'm doing. Things like steaming everything in a colander with a bit of tinfoil over the top because of having no kitchen equipment because I wasn't really a cook then. I was just a person trying to make dinner. And while I'm still a person trying to make dinner, I'm now a person who's been working in food for eight years. And therefore, now I have things like a mixer, a food processor, a big knife. Let's pause there and talk about the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. So in terms of the dish that most reminds me of my childhood, I really thought about this a lot because, as I've said, I grew up mostly in the countryside between five to 15. And then after that, we were in the Middle East and then in France. And then before that, I was in London. So the kind of bulk of my actual childhood was spent in a little village in the middle of England. And I had a very rural childhood, the kind that doesn't really exist anymore. You know, we ate apples from the trees and sort of ate the blossom off and dead nettles. Which <laughs> I don't know if you've ever tried, but there's like a little tiny bead of nectar at the bottom of a dead nettle flower. Yes. Oh, yeah. I remember doing that. And we were just outside all the time and we were very kind of self-sufficient. My mum, as kids, I mean, I, we still went shopping and stuff, but we had sheep that was kind of the bulk of the meat that we ate. And my mum grew almost all our vegetables in the garden. And so really there's that kind of this ethos, which is just now, I think, starting to enter the mainstream of what can you grow? What can you make? Local food, kind of close to home. And I, and we used to talk a lot as kids. We really resented this. We really hated this beautiful local organic food. <laughs> um, we just wanted essentially Dairyly Lunchables. I cannot tell <laughs> you the longing for hula hoops and Dairyly Lunchables, which were not allowed. And so the thing I most remember from my childhood, I thought about this a lot, was what we used to call, I don't know why, I really cannot explain this, study club lunch. I don't know why we called it that. It has nothing to do with studying, which is basically like a pick and mix. Like we'd cut cheese into little squares put like slices of potato, like fry them up, like basically trying to recreate a dairyly lunchable with things that were in the house, it's like little slices of carrot, half a tomato, just like that very picky tea kind of meal, which for me is the kind of epitome of my childhood is coming inside from having been outside all morning, going to the fridge and trying to arrange this sort of spread for myself and for my sisters as well. And then going straight back outside again, really, my parents are amazing, but I think one of the most amazing things is that I have so, they feature so little in my like memories of being a child. I was just outside all the time. I was just outside with my friends, with my sisters. We were kind of straight onto the countryside. We spent a lot of time riding bikes and meeting up with other kids and walking dogs and just generally being very independent and very, lots of space for imagination. We spent a lot of time in trees, all that kind of thing. So my, the meal I think of from childhood is, I mean, we sat down around the table every single night to eat a proper hot meal. And my mum will listen to this and be like, oh, you've made it sound like I never cooked you. <laughs> she cooked every single night. <laughs> but what I actually remember is this study club lunch with my sisters and obviously a sort of collection of friends. 
You say that you were a books girl, not a cooks girl, and you didn't learn to cook at your mother's knee and, and that people don't do that so much now. But what has really stayed with me, which what you said about your childhood, was that it gave you more than a love of food or cooking, which came later in your life. It was the sense that mealtimes are for socializing and that every night you had supper with your sisters and one of your parents and you would talk about the day and, and debrief and decompress. And I think that's something that's stayed with you now. Totally. I mean, I can't imagine living in a house where I don't have dinner with someone every night. My housemate and I have dinner together at eight o'clock every single night. I mean, obviously we both go out, but if we're in the house, we're eating together at eight o'clock and I cook and she washes up every single night. I mean, she's away this week and my poor boyfriend, I just keep saying, I'm coming over for dinner tonight. <laughs> well, I think that I think that's amazing. Like of all the lessons or practices that a childhood could give someone, I think that's a pretty great gift to have been given. Yeah, isn't it funny how we kind of carry through those childhood eating patterns? So I don't really think of breakfast as a sociable meal. I think because I've got three sisters and breakfast is very much eat your food quickly and put your school uniform on and we're going to go to school now and everyone needs to be in the car or everyone needs to be at the bus stop and have you got your homework and so I think of breakfast usually it's kind chaos. of <laughs> chaos and just if I eat breakfast at all it's kind of oh a bit of toast while I'm walking around trying to find my socks or whatever but dinner for me is absolutely sacred I love to chat I love to debrief about my day would you ever have a tv supper or does that fill you with complete horror Oh, almost every day. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't watch something serious. I would say we eat most of our meals, particularly since uh, the last year in front of the telly. Okay. So you're, you're, but you wouldn't do that on your own. So you can be in front of the TV, but it's, it's a sociable. It's very much sociable. Okay. It's very much, let's watch an episode of Project Runway from 2008. See, I, I kind of pictured you laying the table, sitting down, not in your pajamas, but it's not that. It's not a formal affair. I think I used to. I think certainly when I wrote Midnight Chicken, I felt that sitting at the table was important. And now I feel much more relaxed about the whole business. For me, the important thing is the people and community and... And Project One Runway. And Project Runway, with which I am obsessed. <laughs> I have strong feelings about Project Runway. And I think it doesn't matter to me so much if you're in front of the telly or if you're at the dining table or if you're in pajamas or if you're under a blanket or, you know, if you're in formal wear, <laughs> so long as you're there with people and you can kind of share the food and you can share the moment and you can kind of pause and debrief and say, this is what happened to me today. This is what I saw today. I think that's the important thing. Mm, and I think it's important whether you've had a good day or a bad day, it's sort of, it doesn't matter. It's the decompression at the end of the day, isn't it? Absolutely. It's funny. I think once you get into those habits with people, as I say, my flatmate is away this week, but I'm still texting her at dinner time to say, you will not believe what happened to me today. Yeah, it's important. I, you did just mention um, formal wear. And I like the idea of just a casual Tuesday at home, you being almost in black tie. Sitting at the table. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave that as the image, Ella. I love that you discovered a love of cooking slightly later in life. And whilst your parents were both really good cooks, it, it wasn't, it didn't sound like it was a passion of either of theirs and therefore was something that sort of passed you by almost. So let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. And that is the first dish that you learned to cook. I think it could have been a passion for my dad. My dad is, he just has, he's just retired actually, or sort of taken on a lesser role, but he has worked incredibly hard my entire life. This is the first year in my entire life that I remember him having a day off. Oh, wow. He's always been sorting out work stuff and he just really works very hard. And when I was a kid, he was able to cook sort of on Sundays and he would always cook a recipe and he would kind of banish everyone from the kitchen and it would always require a special trip to the special butcher or the special fishmonger. I don't remember really appreciating his meals very much as a kid. He'll be happy to hear that. <laughs> but he is a wonderful cook and he loves to cook now. But I think that he was just too busy. And my mum isn't particularly interested in food. She likes lots of things. But ultimately, if she has said many times that if you could take a pill to give you all your nutrition, she would take that. Just have more time. You know, she loves to paint. She loves to do sports. She loves to hike. She loves to be outside. She loves to see friends. She loves to read. She loves to write. So she's a very kind of creative, busy person. And I think for her, cooking has always felt like a distraction from from those things. Whereas for me, cooking is the creative, busy, sociable part. I mean, I think I cooked all the normal 
chid things. So I made pastry with my grandmother and I made lots of sort of biscuits and shortbread biscuits, you know, the kind of things you do with small children. But the first thing I really remember kind of cooking on my own was bolognese. And I used to cook that in my teens and late teens just before I left home. And my youngest sister used to get really cross with me because I put red wine in it. Oh, (laughs) And she used to say, she's uh, eight years younger than me. So when I was 16, she was eight. And she said, wait, you're turning us into a family of alcoholics. (laughs) So I think that was the first thing I was really confident to cook on my own. And then when I moved to London, I sort of stopped cooking. I didn't really cook bolognese or anything. And really Midnight Chicken was the first thing I felt confident in cooking. So the title recipe from the book and the first thing I ever wrote a blog about was the first thing I ever felt was mine. The first recipe I felt like I understood. And you have to talk us through that recipe because and, and, and explain to us what makes it so wonderful. Margie, I honestly don't know. It's some <laughs> kind of weird alchemy. What's interesting is there's so many things that I learned to do to a roast chicken because I made it up that if I'd read the books about how to deal with a roast chicken, I definitely wouldn't have done. So you kind of make a kind of a rub with mustard and garlic and ginger chili, I think salt, pepper and lemon juice, but I would, and olive oil, but I'd have to check. (laughs) I could do it with my hands, but I could just, it's one of those things where it's all muscle memory. And then you kind of slather it on the chicken and then you just roast it very hot. So it goes very crispy and all the juices kind of amass around. Oh, so there's a lemon inside the chicken. And now I think to do that is so mad to put garlic and ginger and mustard on a chicken in that way. It doesn't really fit with a sensible thing to do with a chicken, like you'd be more sensible to put it under the skin. And I think I definitely would have tried that if I'd known about that. Does that make sense? Yeah, but it just worked. But it just worked. And it makes this kind of very delicious kind of, not quite a gravy, more like a jus, I guess, or something like that. But it's kind of just all the chicken juices in the bottom of the tray and you just eat it with like a baguette and lots of butter and maybe some salad. Yum. It's the greatest thing in the world. I can say that because uh, I invented it and so I'm biased. (laughs) And I think lots of other people have confirmed that. So you're okay. But I think part of what people like about Midnight Chicken and certainly what kind of amazes me about it when I look through it now is how much I didn't know. And so because when you don't know how to do something, you're kind of not constrained by the conventions of it. And because I didn't think I'd write a cookbook, that's why there's so much talking in it. There's so much memoir in it because I sort of hadn't figured out that that's not the convention. And so I think with the cooking as well. There's lots of places where my editor always calls them hacks, which I don't love, but there's lots of places where I've kind of found a shortcut because I didn't know there was another way to do it because I'm not trained. I'm not a proper cook. I'm not a professional. I'm kind of always thinking, Ooh, shortcut. That seems easy. Why bother to do that? And it's why in my books and recipes, if I ever tell someone to do something complicated, I always explain why. So I'll say, this is worth the faff or you need to do this. Otherwise it's going to steam. But I think that's probably thinking about it, the secret to all the the cookery writers that we love the most, like Nigel Slater and Nigella Lawson, and you, you're writers first and foremost with a passion for food. And so you're not, as you say, you're not hindered by by the rules or what you've learned at cookery school. It's, It's a way of expressing yourself through food. And I think that's probably what resonates so well with people. It's interesting, isn't it, that Nigella isn't professionally trained. I think I'm right in saying that. Yeah. And obviously Nigel Slater kind of came up through restaurant kitchens. And I think Diana went to Ballymallow, but I'm not completely sure. So I'm not sure about that. But I think about Diana and Nigel and Nigella is that they are very much home cooks and their books are about home home cooking to kind of nod to Laurie Colwyn, who's someone else I really, really love. And I think also with writers like Mira Soda, you know, where there's this very real sense of this is cooking at home that you will do here and now. Does that make sense? It's not restaurant food. It's not fancy. I mean, it is kind of fancy, but it's fancy in a very achievable way. Definitely. It, yeah, it's it's as though a friend is showing you. That's what I always hope. I always hope that I can be a kind of friend in the kitchen, which feels very pretentious when I say it out loud. But when I'm writing, I feel that I'm writing to, I feel like I'm writing to someone directly. You know, I want someone to read it and feel a very direct connection with me and with the words I'm saying, and then I can kind of get that connection back. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. It's um, reciprocated. Yes, very much reciprocal. Writing is such a lonely thing and cooking is such a sociable thing. And I hope that you can kind of bring them both together in a way to balance each other out. So 
writing is so solitary, but cooking for me is always a social act. I hate cooking for myself. I absolutely loathe it. So you were diagnosed with an anxiety disorder about 12 years ago or so. And I think, yeah. I think the official figure is now that a quarter of all people will deal with some sort of mental health disorder at some point in their life. So to look at reasons can seem a little bit futile as it has just become a part of so many people's lives. With so many of these things, there, there was no rhyme or reason as to why it happened to you. Everything at that point was going really well. It wasn't rational. And you talk about that time in your life so eloquently. I wondered if you'd be kind enough to talk us through a little about that time and, and what it was actually like for you living through it. It's so funny. I'll try, Margie. I really will. But I have now talked so much about it and it feels so far away that I sometimes feel like I'm muddying the waters a bit. I have been diagnosed with almost everything. <laughs> I have had hundreds of doctors, not hundreds, but certainly dozens of doctors and therapists and psychiatrists. Where I've settled on now is there's something in my brain that doesn't work the way that brains should work. And it manifests in a whole bunch of different ways. And by now I'm pretty great. I have an unbelievably wonderful therapist who I see every week. And so because I'm in such a good place now and I've been through so many different diagnoses, I think anxiety, and you know, anxiety is always kind of the river that connects them all, that trying to remember how it felt to want to die. So there's this wonderful line by the poet hero, Lindsay Bird, who I love, 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 love. And it just says, I love life and I hate death. So when you try to describe to me what it feels like to want to die, I can only look at you like you're a slow burning planet and I am pouring water through a telescope. And that's so much how I feel about my 21 year old self when I'm like, you don't want to die. Don't do that. No, why? It's all. I think particularly with suicidal ideation, you have to not be able to remember what it felt like. Otherwise it would be too hard to go on. And I work really, really hard. Like my mental health is an ongoing Thing. it probably always will be I would say every day is a struggle against the dark and particularly in the last year I found it very difficult but I have to try very hard not to put myself in that headspace of that frantic I can't go on because when you kind of let it in it's too easy to fall back into old patterns does that make sense totally and I'm I'm so happy to hear that that's so far removed from from where you are today you say that you tried alternative therapies, modern medicines, giving up caffeine and, and sort of all sorts, but but it was ultimately cooking and learning to cook that was completely transformative for you. And I, I know that you've said that you wish the answer to that question was sexier, but I think that is a sexy answer. You found your own solution of what worked for you and ultimately made something great out of something terrible, which is all any of us could really hope for. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because now I look back on that answer and I think what I mean by cooking, part of why why cooking was so useful to me was A, it was a creative outlet where I wasn't expecting anything of myself, except that there should be something to eat, which I would have to be doing anyway. It was both a creative outlet with no pressure, but also the pressure to deliver. Does that make sense? Mm. There had to be something, but no one had any expectation of what it should be. And I think as a kind of creative person who all the time I was thinking, I'm going to be a writer. I must be a writer. I must make this work. And there was such a huge amount of pressure on writing generally that it was wonderful to find this creative outlet that was also very dependable. But also it had this wonderful domestic quality of being able to root me in a time and a place, which I think anxiety in particular is a very destabilizing form of mental illness because it knocks you off what's really happening into this realm of what might happen next or what might secretly be happening. It diminishes your grip on reality in a way that I don't really hear very many people talk about. For me, anxiety is most debilitating because it diminishes my sense of being in the present, in the reality, in here and now. And cooking is, it demands that you're here. It demands that you're very much in the moment looking at the garlic to make sure it doesn't burn. Yeah, and I, I think there must be a comfort in knowing that if you put ingredients together in a certain way, so and so will happen. It's a known. There isn't an uncertainty, but there's also this great mix of, as you say, it's a very creative process and it's sort of is almost magical in, in the sense of turning ingredients into a into a cake. So it's sort of as yeah, completely understand what you say about rooting you in the now. 
It's that wonderful Nora Ephron line from Heartburn about if you put butter and flour together and slowly add milk, it will get thick and how that will always happen. And that is deeply comforting. And I think particularly to an anxious mind, there's a sense of who knows what's going to happen next. Anything could go wrong and say, ah, probably not. If you just stir it quite slowly, the butter and the flour and the milk will come together and make a thick sauce. And that will happen. And when that happens, that's deeply reassuring that what you worried about happening didn't happen and, and it, everything was calm and, and you got there. I guess for me, cooking is quite a low stakes way to practice reality. Mm, that's a really interesting way of putting it. To test the kind of hypothesis that what if the worst thing didn't always happen? What if sometimes it was delicious? What if you could make something and it was okay? But if you fail, that's okay too. Anxious people, I think actually for a lot of people, it feels like everything is quite high stakes, particularly the moment where you kind of have to think, oh my God, I need to buy a new toothbrush. Is that going to kill the planet? Where do I get a toothbrush that's eco-friendly? Or everything can feel so high stakes at the moment. It's like, oh, should I go to this? Should I go out for a drink? Maybe not. Should I go on a bus? Could be a bit risky. Everything is so high stakes that actually it's quite nice to bring it back to the kitchen where if it all goes wrong, mostly people who can afford to buy a recipe recipe book, the stakes are not that high if it goes wrong. Obviously, food inequality, income inequality is a huge problem. And I don't kind of want to diminish that. But ultimately, mostly the people who are cooking an experimental recipe from a cookbook, if it goes wrong, can at the worst have toast for dinner. Yeah. And and also, it's very rare that something goes so wrong that it's completely inedible. Like it's always, it's always salvageable unless you've burnt it to a crisp. You know, we still talk about the donut scrambled egg, which I made in about 2013. <laughs> and fortunately, my friends are very loving and ate all of this sweet oh. oven baked scrambled egg with bits of stale donut floating in. It was supposed to be a donut bread and butter pudding, but something went wrong. And we still talk about it because everybody still ate it very loyally and said, you know, it's delicious, actually, Ella. And I was devastated, devastated. Well, it's like the famous Bridget Jones and her blue soup. You've got to look at everything like that as at least you get a good story out of it. Exactly. And I, you know, there's a reason that there's a sort of double page spread in Midnight Chicken called Blue Soup. Yeah. That story. <laughs> it's very important. Well, yeah, ultimately you cooked your way out of that space, which honestly, Ella, it gives me goosebumps thinking about that. But let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. And that is the best dish you've ever eaten. You already know I'm not going to answer this one. I, <laughs> this is an impossible question. I think, as I've said, that I, for myself, come down to very simple foods. And I've had some very amazing meals. And I've been very lucky to have lots of wonderful meals in my lifetime. And I thought about pesto pasta. And I thought about eggs in all forms. And I thought about chips. I thought a lot about chips. Chips on the beach. Chips, like late night chips. In lockdown, we got really into going to the chip shop sort of three doors down from us like it's just a chicken shop and getting fries and then eating like fries and steak sandwiches mm. and just going really like very classic french food but with a side of frites and the frites came from the chicken shop so that was great <laughs> so i'm not going to tell you about the best meal i've ever eaten because i've got absolutely no idea what that could possibly be um but i'm going to tell you about a meal that i just ate that was really nice okay so we went to wales me my housemate and my husband's boyfriend and my boyfriend. And we drove to Wales. And on the way, we stopped at my friend Kate's house for lunch. And she is a cookbook writer, uh, the Little Library Cookbook, the Little Library Year. And she tested an Italian feast on us. And we started with uh, oysters, which was unbelievable. And then she made this sort of unbelievable souffle thing that I don't even know what she did. She invented the technique. It's kind of based on an old Italian thing. And then we had beans, white beans cooked in a slow sauce with clams. And after that was, there was a sort of Zabayoni ice cream. And it was simply unbelievable to have been in the car for three hours and to know we had four more hours in the car after. And just to suddenly be in this beautiful, peaceful oasis eating things that Kate was making. I just have a really, a really solid bunch of people there. It was great. Wonderful. That sounds heavenly and that's an excellent choice. Oh, actually, I've thought of another one. I thought of another really good meal. It also involves Kate and oysters, which is for my birthday. We went to Wright Brothers in London, uh, London Bridge near Borough Market. And we ordered two platters of oysters and 
three martinis each oh, and wow. just sat there <laughs> drinking oyster shell martinis and eating oysters all afternoon. And that, I would say, was a perfect meal. Ella, living the dream. Let's talk about how the book came about, because I think it started as a blog post and then that blog got turned into a book. But what was that process like? Did you get approached by a publisher? Did you think it would make a good book? What did that look like? So I basically am a child of the internet. I have been online in various guises since I was about 11. I have been on forums. I have had a million blogs, all of them under pseudonyms, so don't bother looking. <laughs> that was very forward thinking of you to do pseudonyms from a young age. Well, I was always quite interested in being different people, you know, so... You know, I had a MySpace that I wrote loads of things on. If someone can find my MySpace and someone's really interested in stalking me, please send it to me because I have really tried to find my own MySpace. I just want to know what I was saying. (laughs) So I'd always been very, very online and I was very on Twitter. And I think when I started cooking, I'd had actually a number of blogs about window boxes. I'd written a lot of short stories. I just had a sort of general blog. And I think I think quite a lot of people did between, say, 2004 and 2010. There was a real loads of people have blogs where they just talk about their days, online diaries. And so it felt quite natural to be writing about my life through the lens of cooking, because that was what I was suddenly doing a lot of. And I actually didn't write very many posts on that blog. The writer Joanne Harris was really, really kind about it. Wow. So what you're hearing in the story is a lot of people have been very kind And I think I was really lucky to have kind of fallen in with a section of Twitter who were full of people who make beautiful work and are also very generous. You know, one of the first people to ever, really the first person to ever say to me, is this your career, was the writer Melissa Harrison, who has written a number of novels and nonfiction books and now children's books as well. And she sent me a DM or a blog comment when I was 15, asking who my publishers were. Wow. And I thought, I'm 15. (laughs) (laughs) So many people were so kind to me that when then I started writing about cooking, people liked it. And then Joanne Harris reposted it. And I think that kind of drew people's attention to it. And I'd only got about four or five posts where people started sort of saying to me, this could be a book. And because I have always wanted to be a writer since I was tiny, I've never had a plan B, never had a backup option. It's always well, I'll be a writer. I don't know what of, but I will write. And I really, I think, drove my family a bit mad by refusing to have a backup option and refusing to ever really sort of concentrate on anything else. That I thought, okay, maybe this is the book. And then I found an agent who is absolutely marvellous. I had meetings with a few agents and the first agent I met was Daisy. And instantly I thought, oh, this woman must run my life forever. (laughs) I'm a real real decide quite quickly if someone's someone's in my life forever person. I'd say with all all my favourite people, I've met them once and said, great, you're it. That's amazing. I know. It's, I mean, it's sort of amazing, but it's awful. I know you touched on this earlier, but I, I did really want to ask you, how did you find the process of talking about the book? Because it is it is one thing to write the book, get it down on paper, But then as soon as it's published and you have to promote it, you have to talk about your experiences over and over again. That must have been a really interesting experience. This is such an interesting question. And it's one where I feel like I've got a bit of a get out clause in that by the time the book was published, the events I was writing about were already very far in the past in that we had given up that flat, everything in the flat had gone. I had very few possessions left from that time and John was dead. And because it was so far in the past and I had been through three years of caring for John at that point, it was almost like it had happened to somebody else. You know, I think I was able to talk about the mental health stuff because that was the trade-off for not talking about grief and not talking about, you know, being a carer and not talking about cancer and not talking about hospitals. And honestly, I think I was just pretty glad to not be talking about hospitals, honestly. And I think because then I had seen death so close up, I had sort of been living in the realm of the dead and hospitals and the actual reality of that sort of thing. That I think partly that's why I say said that thing about pouring water through a slow burning telescope. I can't imagine the naivety of 21 year old me thinking that there would be something kind of 
better or easier or more dignified in trying to kill myself than there would be in kind of keeping going. So the distance was important and the timing of when the book came out. Otherwise, if it had come out sooner, it could have been, I guess you sort of, you're in danger of getting re-traumatised all over again. I think so. I think always with memoir, you want a bit of space. Mm, I was going to say, regardless of what the subject matter is, if you're writing about personal experience, if you're too close to it and you haven't had time to digest it or move away from it. Like we all looking back at age 21, who were we? We were completely different people. But if it comes out when you're 21 and a half, you're you're still pretty close to that person. I always remember Zadie, uh, in, I think it was actually a desert island discs with Zadie Smith. Oh yeah. Where she said she can't bear white teeth. Oh really? Right. When people try and talk to her about white teeth, she just thinks, I was 21, <laughs> leave me alone. And she, she said, it's really embarrassing. Like someone passing around your diary from when you're 21 and you know, all the things she thinks are good. Cause I was, I really love Zadie Smith and I was listening to this Desert Islandist and she was saying the only one of her books she's ever been able to read was one she wrote very quickly. I think it was maybe the second one. And she only read it because she found herself on a plane with nothing else to read. And she said it was a very interesting experience, like it had been written by somebody else, but that she really can't bear white teeth. And I have to say that is how I feel about most things I write. Midnight Chicken feels very like, I was 21. But the things I've written since, my kids' book, the poetry anthology, obviously I've written lots of essays and journalism as well. I'm kind of like, oh, that's all right. Who was that? Well, that's good, Ella. But yeah, that's so interesting about the Zadie Smith thing. We're going to do a very clunky segue now into the fourth desert island dish. Ella, what is your favourite sandwich? So I'm really bending the definition of sandwich here. Okay. So the best thing in the whole world is something I have not eaten for many years, and I probably won't ever eat again, at least not in the same way. So I went to school in Dubai in my late teens because of where my parents were working at the time. Dubai has Lebanese bakeries. And so Lebanese bakeries are amazing. There is something in Lebanese pastries, Lebanese breads that I just love. You can kind of get it a bit if you go to a Turkish bakery, which also have amazing like breads and cheeses and soft breads. But there's this thing that we at school used to call Lebanese cheese bread, but it's probably called like manakish, manish. It's got quite a lot of names. But what it is essentially is a very soft, pillowy, almost like a pitta, but not hollow flatbread. And it's spread all over with this cheese called akawi, which you can't get in the UK. I mean, you can, there's one deli in Shepherd's Bush that apparently stops it, but I've never been able to get it. And it's like a white cheese. I, when I'm making it at home, I kind of approximate halloumi and mozzarella and it's all over it. And then you fold it in half and it's warm and you put za'atar in it. And it's just warm, soft, salty, cheesy, slightly sesame from the za'atar pillowy goodness. Wow. Our school canteen used to sell them. And every single day at 12 on the dot, which is when our lunch happened, we'd go out to the lovely sort of terracey bit outside and it'd be so warm. And I've just come from England and almost all my friends in Dubai had been there been there for a long time. They've sort of been born there or come there as really little children. And so I was so unaccustomed to the heat and they were all eating this snack food, this cheese bread that they were really familiar with. But to me, it was the best thing. It was the best thing ever. And you just can't really get it here. Not in the same way. And I've tried lots of variants of Manakish and Manakish, and I've been to lots of different bakeries. But I, and so partly I wonder whether it's a very, that's the best sandwich, this kind of deep sensory memory of being somewhere so new and it was so hot and I couldn't believe how fast things grew when you watered them because obviously it's so hot and there's so much light. And I was in this brand new situation in this brand new part of the world I'd never expected to visit because I'm not really a very Dubai person. So if it hadn't been kind of only option for my parents, I don't think I would ever, ever have gone there. And I was eating this thing that was so comforting and delicious, so kind of familiar, but also so different. And yeah, I think that's the best sandwich. And if anyone listening has got a really great cheese manish hookup, please let me know. <laughs> we all need those details. That sounds absolutely delicious. There is a lot of discussion now around provenance of ingredients and a lot of conversation centers around the idea that everyone has a lot of time and money to spend on cooking. And I was really interested to read your take on that. As you argue, that's a very exclusionary way of, of talking about cooking. There is no right way to cook. And in focusing on those things, we're in danger of putting people off. 
I think we have to just be mindful that the people who can need to make those choices and that not everyone can. I mean, I think there are just ways and ways of doing it. Like, I worry a lot that in talking, I really don't remember saying that. So I'm kind of trying to figure out as we're talking where that came from. But I think there are ways and ways of talking about provenance of ingredients and how we cook and the ways we cook. I think my feeling is now and has always been that to make cooking something rarefied takes it away from the very solid domestic foundation that it has to have to be useful. If we start from the premise of everybody has to cook, everybody, and I count in that heating up a pot noodle, and I count in that making a 14 course gourmet meal. (laughs) Everybody has to cook at least once a day, probably more. And it's only when you look at that whole spectrum, can you start figuring out how to make real change. You can't say everyone must shop at, you know, an independent rare breed butcher, because that's not financially feasible for a lot of people. And it's also not practically feasible for a lot of people. Like, I am very lucky in that I can, I have the time and energy and money to walk a mile and a half to the independent butcher, but not everybody does. Lots of people live in places where it's a drive to an Asda. So once you look at that, you start thinking about like bigger problems, like how do we make sure supermarkets are stocking better meat? How do we make sure supermarkets are stocking British meat, fair trade meat? How do we make sure that every, not fair trade, like five freedoms type meat, Sorry, what's the word? Free range. Free range, not fair trade. Sorry. Free range meat. How do we make sure that access to ingredients is as equitable and fair as possible? Um, Do you know Ruby Tando? Yes. Her new book is absolutely wonderful on everybody eats and how to make that as accessible and interesting as possible. I truly, good cook as you are, and I truly recommend it to everybody listening and to you, Margie, if you haven't already got a copy. She's done this absolutely amazing job of making interesting, exciting food accessible to a huge range of people. She's even gone as far as producing a second, smaller version of the book with pictorial photo step-by-steps for some of the recipes. Wow. So that it can be used by people with intellectual disabilities or people with processing difficulties. It's absolutely one of the most extraordinary things I've ever read. And I really hope that the food industry, particularly the cookbook industry, sits and takes note. I had already finished mine by the time I got to the end of Ruby's, but it made me want to go, okay, this is how we can do it. This is how we can make good, exciting food accessible to everybody. And I also think we have to understand the role food plays in people's lives, right? So it's all well and good saying, oh, you must buy no palm oil peanut butter. I'm taking an example, not from my own life, so I won't get defensive about it. And I don't eat peanut butter. So (laughs) So you must buy the organic crunchy earth peanut butter that has no palm oil and is all organic and fair trade. And what you leave out when you say you must do this, you, that, that when you kind of privilege that is to say, but what is the sort of the skippy peanut butter doing? What is the cheap palm oil peanut butter doing? What comfort is that bringing to people? What role is that playing in people's lives? How can we work with what we've got in order to make a more equitable sourcing of food. Does any of this make sense? I'm kind of, these are big, completely, these are big questions and I'm kind of talking about them on the fly. It's a really interesting question. I haven't sort of tried to articulate my viewpoint on it in a while, but yeah, I think we have to be really mindful of where people are, where they're getting their ingredients from and what role those ingredients need to play in their lives. If your solution to the food crisis and to climate change is poor people need to work harder and spend more money they don't have, That's just not going to work. It's only going to make people annoyed. And also it is functionally not going to change anything. Whereas if you start thinking about the structural problems, you know, I'm going to say again, supermarkets need to commit to stocking British meat and high welfare British meat, because I really think that that would make a huge difference. And yeah, that's, I think you have to look at the structural problems and the emotional things. And I think to treat food as a simple as a simple one size fits all thing is just never going to be helpful to anyone. Mm, I think it's, it's when you start talking about the morality of food and sort of forgetting the reason for cooking and the joyful nature of food, people can miss out on the act of cooking because they're worrying that they're not doing it right. But as you say, everyone's coming at it from a different standpoint and we can't judge everyone by the same standards because... That's what I'm getting at really, is the fear of getting it wrong, the fear that someone's going to judge you for doing it wrong, the fear that you're eating wrong, the fear that you're 
somehow living wrong. And because food is not just food, it is emotion, it is history, it is culture, it is community. It is symbolic of all those things because it carries within it all those things. You have to be pretty sensitive when you go around telling people what to eat. And it's something I'm very conscious of as a cookbook author. When I write recipes, I have to be aware that because I didn't learn from my mum, I have my culinary heritage is kind of this mishmash of things that I've picked up from books and mostly Google. And so you kind of have to be very culturally aware of, I think I'm drawing from this thing. I think I'm drawing from this thing. I think I'm pulling it from this thing. I use this because that's what I have available, but maybe you could use this if that's what you have available. I always want to make sure that I am acknowledging the family tree of recipes that came before me and also giving a hand to the people who might come after me, by which I mean the people who read my recipes, the people who cook my recipes. Ella, let's pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. My friend Gavin calls this my gym rat dinner. (laughs) And I eat it, I would say, almost every night when I'm on my own. Because as I say, I don't really like to cook myself. So I have this kind of base level dinner that I can eat on my own and that will be delicious. What is it? It's chicken rice. So it is literally, I cook rice and chicken stock, one cup of rice, one chicken stock, like little chicken stock pot, two cups of boiling water, stir it. Sometimes I put a bit of oil, sometimes I don't. Put the lid on, lowest possible heat. And then I saute some greens, usually Cavolo Nero, but basically whatever greens are in the fridge, cabbage, kale. Saute that in more olive oil. And I tend to put like a spice on there, maybe like chaat masala, maybe just cumin, some kind of like interesting flavor on the thing, chili on the greens as well. Put the greens on the rice, I eat. This will be controversial. Two raw egg yolks, which I stir through the rice and they kind of cook. They kind of cook in the rice, kind of like carbonara. And that's it. That is my meal I eat most often. Chicken rice, greens, egg yolks. Yum. It is important to me. Yeah, I don't think you can go far wrong with that. And now I'm so excited that we can talk about your new cookbook, which is coming out in the spring of 2022. So only a few months to go. It's called The Year of Miracles, Recipes to Save Your Life. Is that right? That is what it's called. We've been back and forth on so many titles that I had to pause a minute, but I think we're all happy with this one. Yes, I'm. this is the first interview where I get to talk about it. Yay! It's been the hardest thing I've ever written. It's a kind of, I sold Bloomsbury, my lovely publishers, a sort of lighthearted book about dinner parties and friends and chatting and seeing loads of people and having this social life. And I said to them that my plan was to write it in the spring of 2020 about the things that were going to happen in 2020. And as I'm sure you have already figured out, my lovely book about lovely dinner parties of 2020 did not quite come off. (laughs) It's kind of like a journal. So it's kind of told through the year, January to December. And it's about love and grief and falling in love and alternate alternative forms of love and family and also about cooking and about all the cooking that I did when I had nothing else to do and I couldn't see my friends and a lot of my favorite restaurants were closed and I live in deep southeast London. So the takeaways, the fancy restaurants I really like tend to not be here and certainly don't deliver here and certainly didn't deliver here in the pandemic or kind of ongoing, whatever, but in the sort of lockdown periods. and. It's a story about going through something and coming out the other side. It's a story about cooking less as the kind of desperate. I I feel in Midnight Chicken that cooking was for me a real, was like someone had thrown me a life preserver. It was like I was kind of drowning in this shipwreck and someone had been like, here, cling on to this. And I did. And I think this is much more about cooking kind of integrated into your life and about daily life and about friendship and love and romance and the kind of everyday romance of cooking for someone. It's about my wonderful flatmate and our life together. It's about eat- it's very much about eating together. And I'm just so excited. I'm so excited to sort of have this book out there in the world about these things that are so important to me, how friendships can be as important as romance. It's about how I dealt with death and grief and what it's like kind of being a carer and then not being a carer because not because the person got better, but because they died and about how you learn to live after something traumatic and terrible. And it was really wonderful to be writing it in the pandemic and thinking, oh, this will be helpful, I hope, to a lot of people. My sort of personal story of grief and cooking and how this kind of constant thread of cooking and domesticity has sustained me and brought me back the other side. I think and hope that it will be helpful to people who've had a really rough couple of years 
that's my aim with it. I'm so proud of it. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's taken me three years and so many drafts and so many recipes and so many recipes left on the cutting room floor. But I think the food, I'll let everyone else be the judge of the writing, but the food is certainly the best and most interesting food I've ever done. And I must say now that you will find recipes for the chicken rice and the complicated version of the chicken rice and the Lebanese cheese bread or a version of in there. Amazing. Oh, I'm so excited. And also, I love that it wasn't the book that you pitched because I think so often you hear that about books that become really important and uh, very successful is that they kind of took on a life of their own and they weren't they weren't what they were initially meant to be. So I think that's a really good sign. I hope so. I felt a bit bad saying to Bloomsbury, you know, the lovely book that you're looking forward to about happiness and lovely dinner parties. I think we can all agree that that's not happening <laughs> because it was just too hard. I tried to write it about sort of memories of dinner parties, but it was just so sad. And in some ways, I felt the Midnight Chicken for me was always going to be tinged with sadness, not only because it was about suicide but and mental health, but because as I was writing, I knew that it was a world that had gone, you know, it became clear quite soon that we were never going to be, even if John survived, we were never going back. We were never going to be those people again. And then he had a traumatic brain injury as a kind of complication from cancer treatment. And then it became clear that he would never be able to live outside of a sort of specialist placement ever again. And so when I was writing it and public writing it, even before it was published, I was kind of writing this elegy. And I really wanted with this book for it not to be an elegy. I wanted it to be about the moment and the present moment and the joy of being able to live where you find yourself. And so I didn't want to write a book that was like, oh, remember dinner parties? Weren't they wonderful? Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to write a book that was like, hey, we can't have dinner parties right now, but isn't it amazing to be able to cook for yourself, for the person in your house, to make cakes and leave them on doorsteps? Isn't it amazing to be able to do what you have with what you have? And this sounds like it's a very pandemic heavy book. Actually, I don't say the word pandemic anywhere in it. I certainly don't talk about COVID or viruses or any of it. I talk a lot about apocalypses, but I mostly talk about kind of personal apocalypses, you know, a grief, a, a death, even like a birth, really, I guess, just anything that kind of shakes up the world and makes you come out of it a different person. Oh, I'm so excited, Ella. And that brings us on very neatly to the sixth desert island dish, which is your go-to dinner party dish. I'm going to be so boring. It's midnight chicken because I can make it with my eyes closed. Basically, I just make it every time. And the other amazing thing about midnight chicken as a dinner party dish, or in fact, really any really good roast chicken, especially one that kind of produces its own gravy, is that you can buy everything else. Laurie Colwyn, in her wonderful book, Home Cooking. I don't know if you know Laurie Colwyn. I do. I love her. Yeah. I love her. She's so important to me. She talks about how the best thing a novice cook can do is buy absolutely everything. <laughs> There's this wonderful line about how her cousin can't cook, but brunch at her cousin's is the only time everyone gets as much smoked salmon as they want, <laughs> which is a fantastic thing. And so the thing about cooking a roast chicken is if you do it the way I do it, you can just buy everything else. And that makes it very easy to have a very low stress dinner party. Yeah, which is what you want. No one wants a high stress dinner party. People don't really come to dinner parties for food. They come for the chat and to have a nice time. And so if you do like a roast chicken, or if there's more people, a couple of roast chickens, then you buy incredibly good bread. You buy like beautiful little salad leaves, little gems and little like those beautiful ones that look like a painter is like speckled purple over them, a little freckly, what are they called? Rosso something? Yeah, the beautiful. But the beautiful ones, you can buy beautiful tomatoes, you can buy cucumbers, you can buy apples, you can buy any kind of all these beautiful bits of vegetables and you can buy good bread and you can buy the best butter and everyone is so impressed. And then you can buy a pie and cream and everyone is equally impressed. And you don't have to say, you don't have to make like a big song and dance about the fact that you bought the pie. <laughs> I think you don't have so, to. No, so often, I mean, you can if you want to, but so often, I think often my mum will buy something and she's so, she feels so guilty that she's so quick to say, oh, I didn't make it. And I'm just like, just don't. Just lay it down, present it nicely. And when people say it, how delicious it is, just say thank you. <laughs> but the thing is also, you can say you bought it. You just don't have to apologise. Yeah, completely. Yeah, that is it's the way you do it. The idea that I could be hosting someone in my house, I will have probably tidied it a bit. I mean, I must say there are books and paint and things everywhere. But if someone comes around, I usually sort of clear the table a bit take off, I have brown paper over the table for drawing on and making notes on. So take off the brown paper, put some napkins on the table. The idea that I have gone through this effort, I have got out of my pyjamas, 
I've come home from finished work early or whatever. And then you're going to say, oh, well, you shouldn't have bothered going to hers. She just went to a bakery. She didn't make her own pie. You'll never believe it. <laughs> I went to a bakery. And it's just, and weirdly, my friend Katya came round and I gave her a cherry pie from Sainsbury's. And she said, I can't believe that you just bought it. And that was fine. And I was like, and is it not delicious, Katya? The Sainsbury's cherry pie is really good. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, it is. I would say the M&S like fancy apple pie. That's really great. But the Sainsbury's like absolutely normal range. I think it's like £1.50, but then I always buy it on reduced with like a little yellow sticker. So maybe it's like £2. It's just absolutely amazing. Next dinner party, buy the Sainsbury's cherry pie, the really thick double cream, and everyone will be so happy and pleased to be eating cherry pie and cream. Oh, yes. I want that now. Also, cherry pie, let's be really real here. It's a huge faff because you've got to stone all the cherries. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't want to make cherry pie for yourself. No. And I frankly never will. I do make apple pie quite a lot because it was one of the things that I was taught to cook as a child by my grandmother. And so I do cook apple pie, but I would never make a cherry pie. Yeah, no, but cherry pie is a different beast. Sainsbury's do it better. Yeah, they do. <laughs> this, this is not sponsored by Sainsbury's, but it can be <laughs> if they're listening. Um, <laughs> now... On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner, and I'd just love to know what is your most treasured cookbook? So, my actual most treasured cookbook, so I can give ones that other people can buy, which I'm going to go with Home Cooking by Laurie Colwyn and How to Eat by Nigella. But my actual most treasured cookbook is one my mum made for me when I left home. Oh, I love that. For each of her four daughters, my mum got just like a regular spiral bound notebook, and she wrote in it all of the recipes that she had cooked for us growing up. My dad photocopied all the ones out of recipe books that he had made on Sundays. So my parents have this very cute thing where wherever they, whenever they cook from a recipe book, they write on the book itself the date and the time and what they thought of it and who ate it. I love that. And so with, this, with the photocopies that my dad had done of all his recipes, you know, it was all these things like 14th of July, 2005, Ella revising, Sia playing tennis. That's my sister. Um, the little two, little two watching telly all day. Not sure about this one, bit salty or whatever. So that's really, and then my grandparents wrote recipes and I kind of kept adding to it until the book was full. I guess that was the first kind of intimation I had that a cookbook could be something I could do was I kept writing in this notebook until there were no more pages. What a special so, thing to have. So special. And the other thing that's really important to me is, do you know Madda Jaffrey? Yes. Madder Jeffrey's Curry Bible. So every Friday when I was a kid, this is one actually a time where I do remember my parents cooking. My parents would go to the pub in the village and then most Fridays, a number of people, a number of their friends would kind of come back to our house and they would make a curry, usually Madder Jeffrey. And I remember very vividly my parents' kitchen being full of their friends and them and just kind of people kind of stirring things absentmindedly. And I loved their copy of Madder Jeffrey's Curry Bible so much that my dad for I think my 22nd birthday gave me their copy and had transcribed all their notes so that is also very precious to me is wow your parents are very thoughtful they are unbelievably thoughtful they are really can't fault them Ella we're on to the final seventh desert island dish and that is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island so I've given this actually probably too much thought I have this game that I like to play with people who like food which is, I guess, desert island dishes. But the game is you can have five crops and one animal on your desert island. And that's what you have to live with. You know, you can kind of get salt from the sea. Sometimes people say, is there fish in the sea? And you can kind of, you know, go back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> but it depends. How strict is your desert island? What, I mean, is this just coconuts and fish and palm leaves forever? Because this is really going to affect your choice. Yeah. I think the desert island is whatever you would like it to be. All right, so I'm going to say it's my desert island from my desert island game, which means I've got five crops and one animal, which is a chicken, rice, greens, garlic, coffee, and olives. Okay. <laughs> In my garden, I'm growing rice, some kind of greens, garlic, coffee, and olives. And I've got a chicken that I can have eggs or I can eat or whatever. It's a, it's a magic chicken, which means that I'm actually all right. I can cook nearly everything I love from those things. I'll be sad about not having a cow, but, you know, what can you do? which means that my last meal is going to be an absolute feast of all the processed food I will never eat again. Ooh, okay. So you're going heavy on the golden syrup. Golden syrup? That's actually something I've written down. <laughs> I'm going to have a Greg's sausage roll and I'm going to have Greg's vegan sausage roll, which is actually, I think, nicer because it tastes even more processed. Agreed. I'm going to eat a Mr. Kipling's apple pie. Um, possibly, actually, I got it from the shop the other day. 
but this was just before Halloween. And they were called the terrifying toffee whirls. They were actually just v- toffee-flavoured Viennese whirls, but they were very nice. I'm having those. I'm going to have some serene with Kerrygold on it. I'm going to have Kerrygold butter. I'm going to eat so much butter. Processed white bread with Marmite. Basically, I'm going to have everything that I will never be able to manufacture. Probably going to have some Reese's peanut butter cups. Um, coffee I'm not so fussed about because I'm going to be- I'm not allowed to drink deep. I'm still off caffeine. I've been off caffeine since I wrote that book. But on my island, it doesn't matter how crazy I am. So I'm just going to drink coffee all day. <laughs> I'm just going to live on espresso and people are going to come and try and rescue me. And I'm going to, uh, I'm not taking it. If, I, if I've got rice and greens and coffee and olives. You don't I'm, want to be rescued. No, I'm going to set up a whole society. I'm going to be sort of making pencils. As long as I've got my luxury of some pencils and paper, I'll be fine. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to eat this huge feast of all, all the processed foods I will never be able to make. I would say Marmite's going to feature heavily because I don't think there's anywhere I'm going to be able to make Marmite on my island. No, that might be tricky. A Sainsbury's cherry pie? Yep, one of those. Basically, just anything. I'm having. And also, I'm going to invite everyone to eat it with me. And what I'm going to say is, please bring me your salt and chipsticks, which are my favourite. Bring me your walkers. Bring your favourite junk food party. And then in the middle of the party while we're all eating this feast, I'm going to say, unfortunately, Margie has cast me away. (laughs) I will be leaving now to live a sort of monkish existence where all I do is create beautiful things. And everyone, I think, will be not that surprised. I think that's the kind of stunt people kind of expect. I might just announce that I'm going to live on an island. I thought you were going to say you were going to do a very stylish French exit from your own leaving party and just sort of disappear into the night. Oh, no, I want the fuss. Okay. <laughs> Huge amount of fuss, please. I want everyone to say, don't go. We'll never survive without you. Do you know what? I think actually most people would say, okay, well, see you when you get back then. Ella, I have to say that is the most original answer that we've ever had on Desert Island Dishes, and I appreciate it very much. <laughs> I would eat a huge quantity of junk food. <laughs> Not junk food. Whatever. Thank you so much for letting us hear your Desert Island Dishes. Thank you for having me. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. I'm now on TikTok at Margie Nomura. And you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week. Bye.